Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Local Europe edition. I'm James Savage and with me I have Emma Lufgren, editor of The Local Sweden. And this week we'll once again be talking about the highs and low points of the week in Europe. Emma, how's your week been? Uh, well, I can't really say it's a bit of a blur because I overslept by two hours this morning. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> so where is Emma this morning? Yeah, Emma. I, I think you saw me rushing in with my coffee cup in one hand because I didn't even have time to drink the coffee at home. So I literally drank it on my way to work. She actually walked across town with a uh, China mug in her hand. Um, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that feeling in the morning when you wake up and you just immediately know that you've overslept even before Uh you look at the time it's like your body clock just knows but what about you James what have you been up to well I've actually been very busy in the office welcoming new colleagues we've had two new colleagues join us this week which is great fun and we've published the second edition of our Brexit newsletter which lots and lots of people are subscribing to so very excited about that and we'll be talking to the editor of that newsletter Alex Macbeth a bit later can I just say that I love how you're just bragging about being really hardworking just after I've told you my story about oversleeping? Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> totally unintentional, promise. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for all your words of encouragement after last week's episode. Um, many of you were kind enough to say you enjoyed it. You had quite strong reactions to the Catalonia story. And that's a story that's just kept developing over the past week. But this week, we're going to ask, why are the French going on strike again? How many Brits are really going into Brexit in Europe? And where? And how? And do German men really want to have sex with robots? That's quite a spread of subjects. Yeah, well, we like to spread ourselves around, so to speak. So... <laughs> Um, I'm rather looking forward to this, but let's get stuck in. France's new president, Emmanuel Macron, didn't get much of a honeymoon. Hundreds of thousands of public sector workers have been striking against the labour reforms that he says are needed to make France's economy fit for the 21st century. But will Macron surrender? I spoke to Ben McPartland, editor of The Local France in Paris. I started by asking him why the workers were so cross. Uh, it's a man named Mr Macron, uh, the new president of France, obviously, who has imposed a few cuts on them and a few uh, changes that they don't like. The first one, or the main one, is that he's going to cut 
120,000 uh, posts in the public service over five years, I think starting with about 16,000 next year. Um, he has changed sick pay, so if, if civil servants take a day off now, they're not going to be paid for that. The pay will only kick in on the second day off. Uh, to put that in perspective, however, the, if you're in private sector, the kind of the law is that you, you go unpaid for the first three days of sick leave. So civil servants still have it all right, or at least that's what the workers in the private sector are saying. He's also um, changed taxes. So a kind of social security tax that's taken out of your salary is going to go up for everyone. But for those in the private sector, they're going to kind of be compensated by a, a cut in other uh, taxes. So they're going to be better off. Whereas people working in the public sector are certainly going to be worse off, and uh, and apart from that, the the, the pay freeze that he's uh, Macron has imposed again on civil servants. They had a pay freeze for a number of years um, that was ended by Hollande in a kind of last ditch attempt to improve his popularity. That obviously didn't work. Uh, Macron has reimposed the pay freeze. That makes for one big angry French civil service. Added to that, you got the labour reforms, Macron's pro-liberal policies, all these things he said about. Workers being uh, slackers, nobodies, stirring up uh, SHIT. You know, he's made a few enemies, so uh, people are pretty angry at the moment. You say that the private sector um, often has worse working conditions than the public sector, but are private sector workers sympathising with the public sector here? I think, in yeah, it's a kind of case in, in, in a lot of strikes in France that I've noticed over the years. The private sector kind of grumble, but there's such a culture of of kind of striking and protesting here that it's kind of accepted. So I guess the overall attitude is, oh God, my school's closed again. You know, they're on strike. My flight's been cancelled. Yet this is part of uh, part of our culture. People go on strike. They've been fighting for their rights for years. This is why France perhaps has some of the um, best employment protections, you know, around, uh, even though um, times are changing. And I think, uh, I, I guess the overall view is that, you know, the French, you know, those in the private sector, and I would say even those in the public sector kind of realise that France has to take this medicine now. It has to kind of reform it, it, its labour market, its public sector. It's under pressure from Brussels to make cuts, to save money. Uh, you know, if France wants to be an example to the rest of Europe, which Macron clearly wants it to be, then it has to get its own its own house in order, you know. Um, I think we've got to put it in perspective. Yesterday there was... You know, if we're talking about 5.4 million civil servants in France, public sector workers, there was maybe between 200,000 and 400,000 actually on strike yesterday. If we look at teachers, there was only about 17.5% of teachers walked out. Uh, that still meant for a lot of schools being closed. But look, it didn't bring the country to a halt. We've seen a lot worse in France before. So in a sense, it's not really working for the public sector unions then? It's not working up to now. I mean, things can change. I think that's what you kind of learn in France, that, you know, a few more slips of the tongue by Macron, maybe some more unpopular reforms that are certainly down the line, you know, in terms of cutting spending, perhaps on social security, on the reforms of kind of unemployment benefit, that they're, they're, they're further down the line. So at the moment, there's not enough momentum for, for him to change his mind. You know, he's, he's sitting there in the Elysee Palace. He will not be sweating at all over what he saw yesterday, you know. He's played it quite canny. He's kept the door open for negotiations with unions. Uh, you know, he's saying, come in, let's talk. But he's certainly not going to backtrack at the moment, not with, you know, the kind of small numbers that are out on the streets at the moment. 
I think we in the rest of Europe have this view of France as sort of the home of the strike. I mean, perhaps it's because we're all affected by it if we fly over France uh, during the summer and there's an air traffic control strike and that kind of thing. But is that a fair um, characterization of France now? Is it really so so sort of prone to strike as, as we think it is? If you look at the stats uh, which come out regularly, France actually loses less days to strike than even a country like Denmark. Uh, however, it is very high on the scale in Europe. I think it's twice the number of days lost to strikes than the European average. Uh, and I think, like you say, when the reason why France has this reputation is because when there is a strike, it literally uh, affects well affects a lot of people. And the strikers, the protesters, do their best to cause as much havoc as possible. So you mentioned air traffic controllers. You know, we've heard about passengers being stranded in Spain, in France, you know, can't get home because of air traffic control strikes. You know, you just have to speak to the Mr. O'Leary who runs Ryanair, what he thinks about French air traffic controllers to get a, a view of whether he thinks France is the strike capital of the world. Uh, there's train worker strikes, you know, there's teachers. Whenever it happens, uh, you know, truck drivers who can block ports, block the road, block the route to Calais, it just seems to cause so much yeah. more impact than in other countries. And hence the headlines and hence the reputation that follows. Very interesting, Ben. Well, we'll uh, see how this uh, ends up working for Mr. Macron. All right. Uh, thanks very much for now. And I'm sure we'll revisit in the future. So now we go from France to my home country of Britain and the never-ending saga of Brexit. It's more than a year since Britain voted to leave the EU, and unless something radical happens, Brexit Day will take place in March 2019. Some of the big victims of this could be EU citizens in the UK, but also Brits living in the rest of the EU. Now, increasing numbers of us Brits are picking up citizenship in other EU countries. We spoke to Alex Macbeth, editor of our weekly Brexit and New email newsletter from our rather echoey Berlin office. So, Alex, how big is this movement by Brits to get EU citizenship? Hi, James. Um, well, it's a, a pretty big movement. Um, I think we've all heard about um, lines of Brits outside the Irish Embassy um, in London, and that was already something, I think, that started before Brexit. Um, British citizens applying for um, Irish citizenship on ancestral grounds. But it's actually something that's happening across Europe um, in a lot of different EU countries. Um, from what I'm seeing from statistics from various ministries of the interior and ministries of justice, um, you know, we're looking at a threefold or fourfold increase really in applications for passports to citizenship in different EU countries. Um, some examples um, in Germany before Brexit in 2015, there was just over 600 applications for German citizenship from UK citizens. Um, in 2016, um, there was nearly 3,000, so you know, an increase of 360%, and it's a similar story in France, where there was nearly a threefold increase, uh, increase nearly 1,500 people applying for passports. And to be honest with you, it's pretty much the same across the EU. I mean, Spain's the same, threefold increase, more than 100 applications, same in Italy. Um, and it's not just the big, sort of, major EU economies that um, British citizens are looking to get citizenship in. It's also um, in, in many of the smaller countries, for example, some in Eastern Europe. Um, Slovakia, according to the Ministry of the Interior, hadn't had an application um, from a British citizen for a Slovakian passport in seven years. And yet suddenly in 2016 and 2017, they had two in each. Um, and the same is true of Hungary. Hungary had very few applications in 2015, about 17. 
and already this year it's more than 30. Um, in the Netherlands, applications have doubled. And so the general pattern is that um, there's a sort of Brexitus of some sort, and a lot of the people I've been speaking to uh, ministries are saying that the numbers are increasing day by day and they're expecting more applications in the next year. Okay, wow. Yeah, we've had a similar story in Sweden as well. But when you talk to people in Italy about why they're doing this, is it is it just the practical move, like get your hands on an EU passport to make sure you have one just in case? Or are they making more emotional commitment too? Well, I think that's a good question. I think they are making a practical commitment first and foremost, but because of their emotional attachments, I think, and the lives they've built in different countries. I've been speaking to people in several different EU countries, and you know, many of them are, are, are married to citizens in that country, have children. Um, who they've been bringing up in that country, work in that country, have been working for maybe 15, 20 years, maybe more. Many of them have businesses and so, and you know, have, have, have certainly bought into to the culture, the language and the lifestyle of the country where they live. And so, on the one hand, it's a practical move to, to, to guarantee that lifestyle and to guarantee that, that kind of, to, to, to bring some certainty to what is a very uncertain process in their lives too. As someone who's done it, done it myself i i think when i started doing it it was it was mostly a practical thing i wanted to be able to vote as well i thought that was that was that was kind of important after a while um but it was funny once once i got that certificate through the post and eventually when i got that passport in my hand there was there was an emotional element to it too that kind of took me by surprise a little bit um, but I was lucky because I'm in Sweden. In Sweden, it was really easy. I could I could apply after because I'm together with a Swede. I could apply after just three years in the country, and I just sent in a form and got one back. But in other EU countries, it's much harder, right? It can be. It's, there's a mixed bag of criteria, really. Um, you know, most countries will offer uh, have some kind of um, citizenship program by naturalisation. So you know, for example, if you spend eight years in Italy. Continuously, you can apply for a passport. If you spend um, eight in Germany, if you spend five in France, five in Holland, it's increasing to seven. Ten years in Spain. So depending on the country you're in, if you've been a, a permanent resident there for a distinct period of time, you are entitled to apply for citizenship. Um, also, if you are married to a citizen in that country, the rule you generally you have to have been there uh, a shorter period to apply for citizenship. Um, but there are also these sort of quite exceptional cases. Um, and one of which I've come across is Slovenia. So Slovenia, I mean, a lot of countries will give you a passport if you invest a lot of money there, of course, but Slovenia will give you a passport if you do something exceptional for Slovenia. So, um, and I quote, unquote, um, you would have to contribute something to scientific, economic, cultural, national, uh, or a similar field, and it would have to have a distinct advantage for the state. And in that case, you could have been in Slovenia for a year and applied for citizenship. And the good news for anybody listening is you would be the first British citizen to do so since Brexit. So um, there, there, there's some kind of an opening in Slovenia. And um, there's also, of course, the investor programmes, um, whereby countries will effectively fast-track your citizenship if you have enough money and are sort of willing to invest it in that country, in either property or um, some kind of business or some kind of... Um, Sovereign funds sometimes like Malta. Places like Croatia, Bulgaria, Malta, and Greece, um, and, and several other EU countries do have quite clear investor programs where usually if you invest about 250,000 euro into a property or a business, um, you don't actually have to um, have necessarily been resident there 
So some hope there for some Brits uh, who want to escape Brexit. Uh, Alex, thanks very much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And if you're interested in learning more about how Brexit is affecting people across the continent, you can sign up to Alex's Brexit and You newsletter on any of our sites. Now, as they say, for something completely different. We're off to Germany, where a new survey has revealed an astonishingly liberal attitude to sex and relationships. The poll by YouGov showed a third of German men would consider sex with a robot, and one in three Germans thinks marriage should come with an expiry date. We spoke to Shelley Pasquale from the local .de to see if we could get to the bottom of the German libido. Shelley, the Germans come across here as... How shall I put it? Very experimental in their love lives. What else does this report tell us? Right. Well, um, it tells us that Germans are pretty much very open to trying out new things. Some other statistics, like uh, 17% said they used role play, about the same proportion had had a threesome, 7% had tried group sex, and 6% had tried partner swapping. Um, now, personally, for me, I would say this information, I mean, it, it's surprising, but then not surprising. Um, I'll just tell a story here. I remember when I, uh, before I even moved to Germany, this was years ago, and I lived in Australia. This was the, the time I first encountered Germans. And lots of Germans there on holidays, also Germans who lived there. And one German girl who I lived with, I remember she was very open with me telling me vivid details about her sex life, uh, whether I'd, I'd asked or not, she was very open in wanting to speak about this, told me about her boyfriend and how they'd use role play a lot, and he'd wrap her up in things like saran wrap. And and this was the very what? first... Yes! Wrap her up <laughs> yes, I kid you not. I kid you not. I was just like... What was he, what was he wrapping her up in? in? Is she okay with you telling the story, Shelley? Well, um, I won't use any names in this... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I was just quite amazed and very impressed, if I can say. Um, this was just the first impression I got of, of the sexuality of Germans before even moving here. 
Um, which brings me now to so another finding from the survey that every third German man said he could imagine having sex with a robot as long as it would feel real. Um, now, personally, I feel like men probably across many cultures feel this way. It's just that maybe Germans would be more open to admitting something like this. Um, I just feel like they're more open in general about sex. So I have, I have a very important question. What kind of robot should we imagine when we're talking about this? <laughs> oh, man, that's getting really creative with it, I guess. Um, honestly, I feel like it could just be any generic robot that they might be very happy to um, have a bit of fun with, personally. This also sort of touches to mind for me because being Canadian, right, um, I feel like as a culture, Canadians and, and maybe North Americans as a whole tend to be a bit prude and especially in compared to Germans, right, where they're just more open to talking about their, their bodies, the human body, sex, their sexuality. Um, and just, I guess, like an everyday example of this is when I go to the gym here versus when I went to the gym at home. You know, women here are very, they bear all when they take off their clothes um, at the, in the changing rooms and they have no, they're not embarrassed or ashamed in any way. Whereas back home, oh, Canadians, oh my gosh, where's my towel? I need to cover up. And um, it's, for me, it was almost refreshing and I can say kind of liberating when I came here and experienced that, saw it and felt, oh my God, this is okay. I can actually kind of be like this now too. Though it is, I think, important to point out that yes, there's this liberal attitude perhaps towards sex and, and the human body, there's still this funny sort of um, interesting contradiction because I think there is some truth as well to, to what people, you know, across the world think of Germans as being a bit more sort of reserved when you first meet them, conservative in some ways, you know, um, things run here very efficiently, they're prim and proper. So um, I think that that's an interesting sort of um aspect to them too so they're they're this way but they're also quite liberal germany seems to be liberal when it comes to everything and it stands out for me this liberal attitude to prostitution and nudity and ads and on tv as well is there ever a feminist backlash about this because it would be in sweden really so, so that's surprising for me i feel because personally of all the years i've been here i have not seen or heard of any kind of feminist backlash um, I think with the point about um, a liberal attitude towards prostitution, well, that's, um, I mean, prostitution is, is, has long been accepted in history here and part of their society. Um, after the country reunified, you know, negotiations led to its current state of now being legal. Um, so that, I think, is altogether something a bit different. But in terms of the liberal attitude towards female nudity, um, a backlash? No, I've never seen it. I think it's fascinating. Um, well, there'll be lots of other opportunities to talk about um, German uh, rumpy pumpy. But for now, thanks very much, Shelley. So now is the time in the show where we talk about what our favourite stories of the week are on the local. Emma, what's yours? Okay, so I've got a story on the local Austria where Austria's new ban on concealing your face in public, which is which is the law that everybody refers to as the burqa ban. But that's when it was the burqa ban. That's why they have. That's why they have it, right? Uh, yes, but I think the government at the same time uh, 
outlawed any item of clothing that covers the face just to avoid being sued for discrimination right. and that kind of thing. But anyway, it's causing some confusion with a man in a shark costume, the latest to be ensnared. There was a man being a mascot for the Mac Shark computer chain in Austria who was fined for covering his face with the head of a shark. So that story kind of shows a bit the pitfalls of when you try to legislate what people can or cannot wear in public, doesn't it? It is a little bit of a problem, right? I mean, you know, this, as you say, I mean, this was uh, obviously not intended um, to catch this law was not intended to catch this kind of people, these kind of people, but inevitably um, it has an unintended consequences. Yes, um, poor Mr. Shark. Yeah, well, I mean, you can argue that the unintended consequences show that maybe it's not such a good idea to legislate these kinds of things. I guess yep. that's the other side of the story. Maybe people should be allowed to wear what they like. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so my story of the week is on the German site, the local.de, where we have an article about the most common mistakes that Germans make when speaking German. Now, for me, that was an incredibly encouraging article to read. As someone who speaks a foreign language every day, I think you become very conscious of your own mistakes in that language. But when you see what native speakers, the mistakes that native speakers make, it reminds you that actually it's not too bad. The mistakes you you make yourself aren't too bad, and it gives you a certain level of confidence. So it, it boosted my confidence to read that article. Yeah, I think sometimes people tend to notice the mistakes of non-native speakers a bit more. Like, for example, I'm a native Swedish speaker and I make mistakes all the time. And I think a lot of the time other native Swedish speakers just wouldn't notice me making a mistake, whereas they might pick up on something that you say wrong. No, absolutely. Because I'll make different kinds of mistakes in Swedish um, than a native speaker would make. And I'll make um, I'll make a very particular kind of mistake in English. Um that uh, perhaps is different to what a non-native speaker would make. But um, still, it's good to be reminded every now and again that everybody makes mistakes. Well, that's just about it from us today. If you've got something to say about any of the topics we discussed this week, you can find us on Twitter, at The Local Europe, or on Facebook. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Acast or in the iTunes store. And if you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you could take the time to give us a review. This will help more people to find us. We'll be back with more next week, but until then, it's au revoir from me. And it's Heydor from me. Tschüss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.